0: On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Erica. And Erica was in a toxic relationship with a triangulating grifter. It's a story of sexual identity manipulation, social media smear campaigns, escape plans, and the healing power of the Enneagram. if you have not been to our website recently and want to be a guest on our show, please do go to narcissistapocalypse.com. At the top of the page, there's a button that says guest form. Click on that button, and away we will go from there. Also, at our website, at narcissistapocalypse.com, we now have a community support button at the top of the page, and that takes you to our safe social network. Our community members are on there posting in our forums. We have integrated Zoom support meetings every Wednesday night and Saturday night. We have prompt books for our episodes to help you dig deeper and get more clarity into your relationships and life. You can create and run your own events. We have meditations, closure ceremonies. We can even have single mom groups if you want to start your own single mom group on there. We also have our ad-free episodes. Our bonus episodes are on there. Everyone in there is amazing. We are there to support you and... If you want to join us at uh, NarcissistApocalypse.com, you go to the top of the page, you press that community support button, and we will go from there. You'll make so many new friends in the process too. And if you are experiencing abuse, you are not alone. DomesticShelters.org offers an extensive library of articles and resources that can help you make sense of what you're experiencing. And you can connect with the local resources on there as well and find ways to heal and move forward. So if you are looking for help, please do go to domesticshelters.org to access this free resource. And everyone, we have a friend, at a podcast called Toxic Workplace. And you can go to ToxicWorkplacePodcast.com if you want to be a guest on that show and to listen on that show. It's also an Apple Podcast. You can click to record. If you're involved in Toxic Workplaces you might want to listen to this show. Carly, the host, interviews people about their experiences, and she's fantastic at at, at her job, at what she does. And you should go and listen to her podcast. It's Just go to ToxicWorkplacePodcast.com or look for Toxic Workplace on whatever podcast app you are using. And before we get to our show, I just want to thank Erica for taking part in our show. Everything will be in the show notes after what we discuss on the show. So a big thanks to Erica for being vulnerable, very vulnerable, and for just letting it hang out there. She did a tremendous job, and in the future we'll probably be working with her in some sort of capacity. I know it. And now without further ado here here is my episode with Erica welcome to narcissist apocalypse everyone with me today i have erica how are you
1: i'm very well how are you
0: i am good and that's erica with a k correct
1: it is yeah
0: yes so Today, we are going to hear your story. And right now, you are living in a small little space. You uh, once had an RV. You fixed up an RV. And after you fixed up an RV, you took this little shed. And everyone who... uh, You can't see what I am seeing. But it is the most amazing... She turned this shed into something absolutely... It's like... Uh, it's you, honestly, you're like Martha Stewart of home building here. It's pretty amazing that this was once a shed. So you're very resourceful and I know you're gonna help a lot of people today. So thank you for being here. And now without further ado, Erica, the floor is now yours.
1: Thank you, Brandon. I, I really, um, become grateful for the format of your podcast Um, I like that it's built around the cycle of narcissistic behavior, and then we're able to sort of insert our own unique experiences of those behaviors. And I I spent a lot of time in the last couple of weeks thinking about your question about who I was prior to this relationship, and I'm really grateful for what I discovered there. So who who was I prior to this relationship – there's some really important clues there about things that I need to work on. And I'm afraid that if I don't address those things that I brought to this relationship, that I'm just going to end up in this situation again. So that has actually given me some therapeutic direction. The other thing that I've discovered in that question is that, um, like this relationship really did a number on my identity on my sense of self. I, I was 42 or so when this relationship started and, and I had a pretty solid sense of self. And this just, this just broke me. This crumbled a lot of what I thought was whole. And so by answering the question about who I was before, I'm sort of rediscovering that stuff that was, that was good about me and that I, I want to keep. So that's been the kind of um, hope and courage that I need to go into my, my therapeutic recovery. So who was I prior to this relationship? I'm, I was raised in a Mennonite culture. I grew up in the middle of Canada on the prairies. My dad is farming today. (laughs) Actually it's harvest time. And Um, For those who aren't familiar, Mennonites are a a Bible-believing Christian community. And I would say that our highest value is belonging, is community. Um, So some expressions of Mennonites like Amish and Hutterites actually live in colonies. They value community that much. And that's really handy when you need to punish your people. Because you just have to threaten them with exclusion. And then that sort of keeps people in line. It certainly kept me in line. But unfortunately, there was stuff about me as a kid that didn't really fit with the expectations of a Mennonite girl. Um, I was passionate about learning. And I always wanted to go to university. And then I was outspoken. (laughs) So... I challenged authority a fair bit, and I had a love for science, and that doesn't go over well when you believe the Bible literally. So I I pushed back a lot. And then when I was in my early teens, I just discovered how much I loved girls, and that's completely unacceptable to my culture, at least at that time. So things were hard in my teen years with my family. There are still members of my family who... Who have excluded me. We call it shunning in the church. Um, but by the time I was 19, I, it, it seemed like I'd almost found my way back into the good graces of the church because I was married to a minister. And I think the learning that I took away from that was that on my own, I'm not worthy of belonging. In order to belong, I have to be attached to the right person. And I took that very seriously. It was a role of honor in my community to be a minister's wife. And so I bought the costume, and I put my hair up in bobby pins, and I learned the script, and I played my part as best I could. But what I realized is that part of me was dying inside. I was having to sacrifice something in order to be part of that role and what I was sacrificing was my love of, of leadership and teaching and preaching and politics and things like I live for that stuff. So eventually we left the church and then we also left each other. When I finished. Oh, sorry. I-
0: for those that don't know as well, you mentioned the prairies of where you were from and the uh-huh. prairies uh, for people that don't know is uh, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, area in Canada. Those are two provinces. You're in Manitoba and the things that kind of go- not much goes on there. It's really farming and agriculture.
1: <laughs> That's fair. <laughs>
0: is that fair to say?
1: I think so. Yeah. And it's, I'm glad you said that because geography plays an important role in this story. There is a lot of moving around in this story. So yeah, it Manitoba. Um, so after I finished my master's degree, I, I ended up back in on the prairies in Manitoba, and even though I was out in university and looking forward to finding the love that I had always imagined, I fell into old patterns just being in my hometown, and I ended up married to a man for a second time. Um, he belonged to what we called car we called it car culture. And it was a whole lot more fun than the church. Um, so that included things like hot rods and I rode a Harley and there's pinup girls. And...
0: Was that like rat fink culture?
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Oh, really? You were in rat fink yeah. culture?
1: Yeah. Oh, wow. Yep. <laughs> Very a- much Everyone
0: well. go look up rat fink. I'm not going to explain it, but it's a whole culture.
1: Yeah. My husband actually built, like, he called them rat rods, like a, a like a grungy steampunk kind of cars that's what he built so it was fun and i i dove in i wanted to belong again to this culture so i i bought all the costumes and i memorized the script and i played my part but i realized again that i was sacrificing parts of myself to belong there i and namely things like feminism um it was a highly sexualized culture and my husband was very insecure and controlling and i felt very sexualized so here i was with a masters degree wanting to get my career started and i was i was just you know trying so hard to belong somewhere where i didn't really fit so i knew this marriage wasn't going to be a long one in the meantime i i got a puppy and that just sort of occupied my time this little puppy but it turns out she was pretty sick and it was because of her sickness that, uh, I met, uh, the, my narcissistic partner. It was through this puppy. Um,
0: so, a, so how old are you when you meet your partner?
1: In my early forties. Okay. I, yeah, I think, yeah, it was about six or seven years ago and I'm 50 now. So, okay. yeah, um, yeah so a friend recommended this person to me. She was living in Toronto. Uh, she was a red seal chef. She had a background in homeopathic nutrition for dogs. She was involved in rescue and she, my friend said that that this woman had a knack for sick dogs and I might find some resources there. So I reached out to her on Facebook. I found her on Facebook and I'm going to call her Andy. Um, my first impression of her is that she was aggressive. I reached out on Facebook. I was asking about the health of my dog and she was obviously very, very knowledgeable, but, um, Oh, it just makes me anxious. Even talking about her. Um, she was very knowledgeable, but so forceful and kind of, um, self-righteous in, in the, the, the advice that she gave. And she was quite imposing. She asked questions that I wasn't really there to answer. And, and then her friends joined in and I just wanted a dog food recipe. So I, I went to private messenger and I just said, Hey, look, I'm just looking for dog food. And as soon as we were in a private space, she was much more approachable. She wasn't as aggressive, just as knowledgeable, but you know, she was really quirky, but I was looking for quirky. Like, I wanted some advice that was sort of outside the box. And she's definitely outside the box. So, over time, we we became friends. We chatted regularly by text. Uh, a couple weeks later, she followed up with me just to see how the dog was doing. My dog's name is Ricky. She's actually, my dog is, that's my dad's nickname for me, is Ricky. And that matters later on in the story. So she started saying, like, how's my girl and how's our dog? And she started attaching herself to my life, almost like a virtual reality thing. Like, she just virtually lived with me, which created this really lovely thing in my imagination. And it was sort of a diversion from my own marriage. Um, We just seemed to have so much in common. And day after day, she was uncovering these obscure interests that I had. Like she would say, you know, Hey, I was reading about minimalism or, you know, I was watching a video on van life, like living in a motor home or renovating an RV. And I'm like, are you kidding? Like, that is my passion. I'm going to do that someday. So we, we shared that interest. And that just made me feel really connected to her. Um, I've always loved travel stories. I've read travel books my whole life as a a Mennonite. You know, we we didn't leave the farm a whole lot. And it seemed like Andy's whole life was just built around transportation. Just she was always on the move, always living out of a suitcase. So she, she loved to tell these stories about her travel and adventures. And it turned out later that it was more like being a grifter. It was more about moving from place to place and taking advantage of people and living with people and um, not really doing a whole lot of work. But at first it just sounded like this really incredible person who was an executive chef and who traveled around and had a really interesting life. Um, I was obviously in my relationship at the time I was married and she was too. She was in a relationship and this is how she described it to me. She said she was in a 12-year relationship with a woman named Sarah. And she said, but don't be freaked out by that. The first three years were long distance. She said, I just needed a place to put my stuff. I threw my stuff in her apartment. And she said, I was gone on a contract work for, th- for the first three years. And then she said, when she came back to the city, they tried living together. And there was a lot of conflict. She said that they, um, they argued a lot and there was communication problems. In the middle of their relationship, Andy said that they decided to become foster parents. And so they they fostered a child. As Andy said, it was sort of a diversion for Sarah. It kept her occupied. But then after the boy left, um, they were left with the same problems as before. And they decided just to have a platonic, non-romantic relationship. So at the point that we met, they had been just sleeping in the same bed and living in the same co-op For a number of years, uh, but it was just, they were just roommates. And she said, this is normal.
0: So when you hear that, because right now you're able to use the word grifter. But Hmm. when you heard that originally, was that what popped into your head? Or did you think like this was normal wording and you didn't kind of see through what was actually being said that, You know, this person that she was dating and then cohabitating with, that she was only cohabitating with out of necessity in a way, Um, Or, or they were being used for something.
1: Well, two things. One is that before I could pick up on that, I had to notice a pattern And so just once wasn't enough for me for it to be a red flag or anything. And the other thing is that anything that felt red flaggy to me, she quickly dismissed as being heteronormative. And so, you know, when you break up with a guy, you don't sleep in the same bed anymore. And so if I had any issue or any extra questions about anything, it was quickly dismissed under the, the guise of what lesbians do and because I was so, it was like she was introducing me to a new culture. And because I was new to that culture, I just accepted at face value what she told me. She had explanations for everything.
0: So I guess we're just going to, we're, we're going to just summarize a little of the things that are, have been happening here. So, you know, you are coming into this relationship with. Your eyes kind of wide open, a new life is kind of going on, and you are experiencing things for the first time. And some of the things that you are going to be experiencing, so you have no idea that someone like this really exists, number one. Two, you're kind of being seen here for your first time, common interests, things like that that are, are, are hooking you in with this person. This person has a lot in common with you. They have a lot going on for, with them and for them. And now this little part here, and this I think will probably play a big part for you where, you know, that term, which is heteronormative, you're walking into a world here now mm-hmm. of terminology that you weren't privy to before as if this person is going to show you the ins and outs of the lesbian community, of the gay community, of the LBGTQ community, and to follow her lead and what she says is right and, like, please don't screw it up because you'll look stupid or, or things along those lines. So you're kind of giving here a role where you're lesser than her. Is that fair to say?
1: Without question. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah.
0: So, you know, that is happening. So we're going to talk, like, a lot of these terms are going to be thrown around. I don't know if they're termed, like, cisgendered, but you're being now included in the, mm-hmm. you're coming from the cisgendered world and done in a derogatory way.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And any attempts that I would make at breaking up in the future that was thrown at me. Um, in fact, she would say she had been, ca- she would be cautioned by, say, other she would be identified as sort of a butch, um, lesbian. Um, her terms were very, very fluid. Uh, but she said she was warned by other women like her about women like me, that I'm a middle aged cisgendered straight, according to her, you know, I've been married to men who, who just, and, and she, she wore that badge with a little bit of pride, uh, she described herself one time as a shoehorn and she said, I've gotten more than one unhappy woman out of her marriage. So she actually described Sarah that way a little bit too. Uh, She said, she described Sarah's mental health to me. She said that um, Sarah was just debilitated by anxiety that she was on medication. She saw a counselor and she was utterly dependent on Andy for everything. And one of the things that Andy said, and this, I would, it would take a while for me to realize this, but this is the beginning of triangulation where she would say, I'm so glad you're not like that. And so I took everything that she had described about Sarah and just committed myself to being the opposite of all of that. So if Sarah was, you know, debilitated by fear, then I was going to be fearless. I was going to be brave. If, if Sarah was over emotive, then I was going to be stoic and, and, what she was really saying is she didn't want me to have feelings like, because feelings complicate her life. So it, it was just this, it created this unintentional competition between me and Sarah. And at this point she said, you know, until I get, find Sarah, another husband, she's my responsibility. And she said, what I did, uh, she said, I just got her a puppy. And so she's occupied with this sick little dog and, you know, she's, she's occupied. Um, we didn't meet in person for, I think we were about the eight or nine month mark before we met in person. We never spoke on the phone. Um, we There was no video. I didn't even know what her voice sounded like. And I, I wondered off and on whether this was, ac- whether she was actually the person in her profile, but when we did finally meet, I went to the city on business, and um, it was just—it was awful. Uh, she, you know, their love was expressed, and she spoke often about our future, and I believed all of that. And yet, when we got to the airport and I got to the to the city, she just—it was so clear that her other life was still in full operation we were together for 27 minutes and she dropped me off on the curb, like a cab driver and she didn't even we didn't even hug. And I think I really overestimated the use of emoji. Like that her emoji meant the same thing as my emoji. And that for me, those little tiny symbols represent just a, a tiny sliver of what I'm like in person. Like if I blow you a kiss in a text, my, you know, my affection is, is it very expressive in person. And for her, she just uses emoji and in person, it's just flat. Like there's, there's no affection. It's just flat. She was so apathetic towards me and so smug that I just sort of followed her like a puppy. Like I was, I was kind of attracted to it. It was like, oh, this is love I'm going to have to work for. So after we met in person, I was really convinced that this was just sort of a fake thing. Like, good friend, lots in common, but she obviously has a life, and that's fine. So out of the blue, she I get a text on New Year's Day, and she says, Hey, guess what? I found an apartment. I'm moving out. I was like, holy shit. Like, she said, this is our, this is the beginning of our relationship. Like, this is for us. Let's, let's get going on this. And I'm like, holy smokes. Like the ball is in my court now. Like I'm still married and she's in her own apartment. She, she didn't send me any pictures of that space. And about three months later, I happened to be in the city and I just said like, Hey, I'm going to be in town. Should I get a hotel? Should I stay with you? And she said, no, it's probably best if you get a hotel. And that's fine. Like, we hadn't been seeing, you know, we'd seen each other very rarely. So, fine, I'll get a hotel. But as we, she, she had an errand to run. She needed to run upstairs to the apartment. She said, you can stay in the car. And I said, well, I'd, I'd kind of like to see your, see your space. So she very reluctantly allowed me to come upstairs. I was only there for about 10 minutes. And it was just clear to me that she didn't live there. Um, but you know, Hey, she's a minimalist, so maybe that's her decor or whatever. Like I just rationalized it with other, there was always an explanation for it. And that would be the only time I would ever see that apartment. I saw it for 10 minutes. And then I really got the feeling that she was starting to tighten the screws on my marriage. Um, all of a sudden she texted and said, I've, I've bought you something. I bought you a gift. And this picture downloaded, and it was a camper van. And I just, nobody has ever done, like, that's just such a huge gesture. But she might as well have bought me an engagement ring. And I was just like, oh, my God. And we started planning a camping trip. We were just going to meet sort of halfway between Toronto and Manitoba in this camper van. And I had been going to counseling at the time. And, um, I don't think she liked that. She liked to, I, I realize now that I shared too much with her, what I was learning in counseling because she liked to take the terms I was learning and use them against me. And she said, Hey, you know what? You're not the only one with boundaries, miss codependency. I've got boundaries too. And here's the boundary. You're not going to see this apartment again until you're divorced. And you're not going to see this camper van until you're divorced. And by the way, I'm going camping with Sarah. And that just completely unraveled me. And I was so angry. I was angry at her at first, like I was just outraged. And then I very quickly got angry with myself because I was squandering this opportunity to be with this person who loves me and is promising our future and is obviously taking concrete steps towards our future. And I'm just procrastinating. So I totally blindsided my husband and I know, I know that that marriage needed to end, but it didn't need to end this way. And he was, he was buttering his toast and I walked into the kitchen and I said, I want a divorce, but that's not the kicker. This is what really kicked me in the gut. Three weeks after he left, Andy moved back into the co-op. And not only did she move back, living she lived next door to Sarah now. They had separate apartments but in the same building. She reached out to their foster child, who is now 20 years old or so, and moves him back in too. And then they reactivate all of their family routines like Tooney Tuesday and Sushi Night and Game of Thrones and Jewish holidays. And I just feel so stupid. I feel like I've been completely manipulated. Years later, when I was talking with Victim Services and the RCMP, they sort of profiled her and they said, You know, we talk about the narcissistic cycle and how we might experience the effect of that cycle in just on our own life, that we're idealized and we're devalued and then we're discarded. But the RCMP said to me that it seems like this is more of a machine than a cycle. And that when Sarah was in the idealization phase, I was in the devaluation phase. And then when I would get idealized, Sarah would be on the devalue. And I was just part of this machinery and the the lubrication that kept that machine going was first of all my love for Andy but also my desire to be part of that community and as long as that was motivating for me i would continue participating in this this cycle
0: and you know you you're in that cycle not just because of you wanting to be in that community but what Andy did to you or the manipulation tactic that she used with you was she got you super excited she, she love bomb you with the camper <laughs> all of those promises right off the bat you were given what you were given you went and, and reacted the way she wanted you to react you went and, and got the divorce the divorce needed to happen anyway but it, you know it made things it sped things up and uh, did it in a manner which you were not comfortable with it just didn't feel right and then as soon as you did what she what you did she took it all away and now you were given your heroin and then she took your heroin away the heroin away and now you're in withdrawal and you're really battling and at this point you really know that you are hooked like you are really hooked into this person and now you're having uh would it be fair to say that mental issues maybe start creeping up here as far as how you're thinking?
1: Very, very quickly that starts happening. I start second guessing myself and I just gradually, I feel more and more crazy and I work in mental health. Like I, I'm a counselor and a professional and, and, and I just felt in my personal life, like I wasn't thinking clearly. Um, One of the ways that the conditioning effects that she had, um, she would ask for pictures, naked pictures of me, which I would send. And then she just asked for more and more. She'd be like, put on your bikinis and put on your lingerie. And so I would send her these pictures. And eventually she would say, you know, I can't believe that you would degrade yourself like this. You know that this is something that straight women do, right? And you seem to mistake me for a man. You think that, you know, I'm, I'm into this and I can't believe, you know, don't lower yourself on my account. And I, as somehow I completely forgot the fact that she was the one who had asked for it. Um, the other thing that she did that would degrade me um, was with the use of her pronouns. I noticed when we met that on Facebook, her pronouns were they, them. And so obviously she's a friend. I'm going to ask, what pronouns do you, do you want me to use? When she spoke of herself, she used feminine pronouns. She spoke of herself as a granddaughter and a, an auntie and a sister. And she, this was her answer. She said, it doesn't matter to me. And when you give that kind of answer, when it's that ambiguous, you can can always move those goalposts. And so I always got it wrong. I said, what do you, what do we call each other? Who are we in this relationship? And she said, well, I'd like it if you called me your boyfriend. Um, But she said, I want you to spell it B-O-I, which is fine when I'm writing it. But when I'm saying it, it just sounds like B-O-Y, boyfriend. So I had said that one time in front of our friends, and she she just embarrassed me. She said, why are you calling me that? Why are you gendering me? Why are you saying that? I'm not your boyfriend. And she had asked me to call her that. And I knew, I knew that this was more than just playing this game on me, because she did this with complete strangers. She would come out of like a gas station, and she would go, I just got served. And that means that someone in there called her sir. And there were times when that made her happy. She was proud of that. It was like she was, you know, sufficiently male or sufficiently androgynous that somebody mistook her for a man. Then there were other times where someone would say, more coffee, sir. And she would soften her voice and say, excuse me. And the server would look at her and look at me and go, oh my God, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. You know, what are you girls up to today? Or, and so that she constantly moved that goalpost on what she wanted to be called. And it, it just became so humiliating that I avoided pronouns altogether. And if I was talking to her or about her, I just referred, I just used her name. It, I didn't realize the effect that this conditioning had until I had a speaking engagement in Toronto and a a woman um, had heard me lecture a year earlier in Edmonton and she invited me to come and speak in Toronto. And she was getting me ready to go on stage. She was threading the lapel mic through my jacket. So she was really close to my face and she said, you are not the same. You are different than you were in Edmonton. And then she said, I don't know if it's your friend there. And she gestured to the auditorium where Andy was sitting, but you are different. And I could I could hardly talk because her words were just in my head. Like, what? who have I become that a complete stranger with no vested interest in this sees a change that is so significant that is important enough for her to say to me? And what's everybody else seeing? Like, what does my family see? So that was really a big wake up call for me and I was so I was so ready just to be done. So I tried multiple ways of breaking up.
0: So how far into the relationship are you here where you try to do the breaking up?
1: Probably about two years in.
0: Okay, so you're two years in and you are not really you're not living with her, but you have a relationship with her. And it's more of like you see her when you're in town and she Mm -hmm. might see you if she comes your way, correct? That's exactly right. Okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So she's still sharing a bed with Sarah. No, no, no. She's not. She's in the apartment next to Sarah, but they still have a fully functioning life.
0: And she's probably traveling still for her job everywhere. And she can pretty much do whatever she wants to do. And for all you know, uh, there could be other people. uh, But for right now, because you're traveling, She's established herself as someone who will date two people at the same time. Do you know about, does Sarah know about you at this point? Yeah. Okay, she does. Okay. So, but who knows if there, who knows what else is going on, but she has control here over everything.
1: Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. It would be, it would be a while yet before I got to meet Sarah and have some firsthand experience of her. So at this point, what she knows about me and what I know about her is just mediated by Andy.
0: So you try and break up with Andy. What happens?
1: You know, obviously, it doesn't work because this is a six-year story. <laughs> um, so one of the things I would say is just, I can't I can't do this. Um, and no judgment. Like, you know, maybe somebody else is meant for this kind of sister wife, but I'm not. So I can't do this. And she would just say, well, then you're obviously not gay. So I would stay in the relationship in order to prove that I was gay and acceptable. I tried the altruistic breakup, which is the, I I learned in trying to break up, not to affect her ego, because if I hurt her ego, the retaliation was, was so huge. It was dangerous to uh, affect to make her look bad. And so I would say, you know, you are such a loving person and they're so lucky to have you. And it's obvious that you're very devoted to Sarah and your foster son. And, you know, you have a beautiful life. I'm just going to leave you to that. I'm divorced. I've got a great career. I have wonderful friends. I own my home. I'm good. Let's just go our separate ways. And she would just say, well, you know, it's a real shame because you could be part of this and you're missing out on a, a beautiful family and, you know, shame on you for not understanding how different families can be configured. And so I would I would go into it intending to break up and I would leave it by apologizing and saying "At I was the one who felt stupid.
0: She's a master.
1: My God. <laughs> it's unbelievable.
0: Like the, those explanations, those ways of whipping you back in there, masterful.
1: I think so. <laughs> I fell for it. Um there are other times when I
0: When you pegged her as a grifter. Mm-hmm. That that's the right term. That's really the right term. She's got like those words of uh the, the the mastery of those words to inflict you exactly where you need to be hit for you to react. I mean, that's a real grifter. Uh mm-hmm. um I guess, nuance that uh, a real pro a real pro would have, someone who really knew what they were doing. It, this wasn't like reactionary. This person was large and in charge and was really just knew exactly how you would react and act to everything and was able to set things really in motion as if it was they were the director. And you were in the play, except you didn't know you were in a play.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Have you seen The Truman Show? Do you know that movie? Yeah. Right? So there's like, it's a contrived world and everybody else is on script except this one improv actor. And you don't know that you're being orchestrated or directed that way. And you're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah um another way that i tried to break up with her was when i when i was just really fed up and i didn't offer any explanation i was just mad and i would just be like i am done and i was finished and um andy andy was she created crisis constantly like there were at least two or three crises a week sometimes every day and if i tried to break up with her it would be like I can't believe your, your timing is so bad. Like I just found a breast lump or, you know, I was just in a car accident or I just got beaten up in a women's bathroom or my dog is dying. I can't believe you would do this to me now. Um, the the other trick that she liked to play with, with keeping me on the hook was concert tickets. And one year she bought me tickets to four concerts. And so they're just like, they're in the future. And it's, it's like, you know, hey, we're going to a concert next month and it's like, well, I guess I better, I better not break up. And then the, the other thing she would do with concert tickets is if I misbehaved, then she would punish me by going with Sarah. So, but it I was ready to break up with her at this point and then she said, "My mom my mom is sick. She's in intensive care and she's not she's not going to make it and I need you to come to the city." And I mean, I was re- I was really done. But for me anyways, there's a lot of information about a person in their family. And maybe I could get to know this elusive person, this grifter, if I just met the people that she comes from. And they, they, are, they are lovely people. Um, I went to the hospital in Toronto and um, obviously Sarah came up to pay her respects. Andy walked her down to the parking lot and then her mom patted the bed and she said, Let's talk about that. So her mom said, there are some things about my daughter that I will never understand. But I can see that she loves you. And I'm asking you not to hurt her. Um, We went back to the hotel that night. We were in the city and I, we could have stayed at the co-op. But Andy wouldn't allow me at the co-op yet at this point. I had never been there. So the phone the phone rang in the middle of the night and I said, Aren't you gonna answer that? And she said, No. I said, That's the hospital. And then her sister texted and she just said, She's gone. And then she rolled over and went to sleep. And I I saw again that, you know, if she was communicating that with me to me with emoji there would be the right symbols attached to that story. You know, the broken heart, the yellow face that's crying. But in person, it's just like she just, all she knows is which emoji to attach to things. But in real life, there was just nothing. She was just cold and flat. Um, The memorial for her mom happened not in the city, but in a little, a beautiful little lake community. Um, about four hours out of Toronto, just, and if, if this story is in two parts, then that's the end of part one. Everything pivots right here. The centerpiece to Andy's story is a place that she calls her mom's cottage, which I imagine to be a lovely little cottage on the, the shores of the lake where she grew up with her cousins. It turns out that this cottage is actually just a shack. It's a boarded up, locked up building on stilts in the water. It's just, it's junk. And the city is actually planning to demolish them. And she says to me, if you love me, you will buy this. You have to, you have to buy this. And that set, that was a pattern in the future where she would demand that I buy things for her. And I just, just said, I can't do this. I think mean, it's a, how do you say it's a, it's a pile of junk. Like I'm not going to buy this cabin, but I, I introduced the cabin here because it plays an important role a little bit later. Anyway, as we were driving back to the airport, Andy says, I would give up the city if I could just live at the lake. I'm at this point, I'm still very much thinking that I'm going to break up with her, but this sound, everything has been future faking up to this point, but this sounds legit. So I, I clarify, I say, are you telling me that if we find a place at the lake, you will leave the city? And she said, absolutely. It's, it's close enough that I can commute. I can still pick up shifts in the city. Um, I have the layoff in winter. I can be home with you. It's perfect. I just want to go back to my childhood home. And so I was, on, I was on the hook again. I was like, awesome, let's do it. I landed a job in Andy's childhood home in her hometown. And this is the beginning of the story where Andy uses housing to control me. She, she actually uses housing to control Sarah too, but, um, the only place that I could find to rent, um, I was working in education and, and so I just needed a place to live from like February to June, just like second semester. And the only place that I could find was a little motel with a kitchenette. It allowed me to have Ricky with me, my dog. Um, it was $900 a month. It was a, a temporary contract, so I just submitted a leave of absence. I wasn't sure what to do with my house, so I just locked it up and, and left. So that's $900 for the motel. That's $1,700 for my house. It's 100 bucks a month for doggy daycare. And I took a pay cut to come. So this is, this is now expensive for me to follow this promise about our future. Uh, There's a lot that goes on here, but I'm just going to make it short. Andy persisted in buying the cabin, and she was angry at me that I wouldn't live there. But it didn't belong to her mom. Her mom had sold it. It belonged to someone else. It was locked up. I approached the city. It was actually sitting on leased land. And the city's long-term plan was when these leases came up, they were going to demolish them and turn it into a beach. So even if I wanted to, even if I could find this owner and offer them some money and take over this lease, it was going to be demolished anyways. I was not going to live in that shithole. But she got so angry. And then... It, <sighs> I just, I hate this part of the story so much. I'm, I just feel so stupid. I was told that I had the motel until the end of June. So right at the beginning of June, I, I went to the motel owner with my last check and I was like, you know, here's my rent. And she said, you know, we've had a phone call and you need to leave. And I learned later that Andy made that phone call. And so now... I have five weeks of work left, and I have no place to live. I have my dog, and I don't have a friend in the world, and I am completely isolated from my family.
0: And just to let everyone listening know, the explanation the motel gave Erica was that it was golf season, and her room could hold four people, and they needed it for out-of-town visitors. However, Erica later found out that Andy called the motel saying, That Erica was leaving her dog in the room unattended, which wasn't true. And now just, uh, we're going to go back to Erica right here, and sorry for interrupting.
1: And so, she came, and we just sat outside this stupid cabin. And she, it was almost like she went into a trance. She started looking through other people's stuff, other cabin, other cottages. She's like... This is my dad's shovel. Somebody stole this. And her dad died 17 years earlier. And that was a brand new shovel. Or she found a a rock that was painted on the beach. Fresh paint. Like a kid had just painted it. She's like, "Oh, My sister painted this rock. And her sister is 59 years old. And... And so she went cabin to cabin. She found a place where I could use a toilet. She found a cabin where I could use a kitchen. She found a cabin where I could use an extension cord. And then she broke into that cap, into what she called her mom's cabin. She said, these are my mom's coffee mugs. And this is my sleeping bag. And I, I, just, I just said, I can't live here. And she was so angry at me that she just got in the car and went back to the city. So it's not fair for me to say that I'm homeless because I'm making nearly six figures. I have a, I have a vehicle. I have a beautiful home back in Manitoba. I'm not homeless and I have resources if I want them, but I still have four weeks, five weeks left of work and I don't have a place to live. So I'm, I, I end up finding an RV company that rents, rents campers for $600 a week. And I am so broke at this point. A friend of mine owns the public swimming pool and the space behind the pool, sort of a wooded area had been used for, for camping. And I contacted him and he said, um, yep, yeah, you know, bring, bring the camper in. You're welcome to stay here as long as you need there. Just there's a spot for you there. But he said, I need you to know something. He said, through the winter, we have allowed some homeless people to live there. So we've unlocked the men's bathroom for them. And we will unlock the women's bathroom for you. But you need to know that you're going to be living with homeless people. And I just, I didn't, I didn't feel like I had a choice. So I, I pulled in, I got myself settled. And those people became my, they became my community. They were my friends. And every, we shared everything. We shared hot, hot dog buns and mosquito spray. And we respected each other's privacy and took care of each other's stuff. Like, You know, my panties hung on a clothesline, and there was lots of peeing outside. And I showered at 6.30 in the morning every day in an open women's bathroom, and nobody bothered me. I was completely safe, and we took care of each other. And this is my favorite story. There was a a guy who needed a ride, and I was the only one with a car. So I, I drove him out. I'm quite sure it was to pick up drugs, but I gave him a ride. And when I woke up the next morning, there was a tennis ball in my shoe for Ricky, And I just thought this is so amazing that I worked so hard to belong to the Mennonite church and I just didn't fit in. And I worked so hard to fit in with Andy's life and I wasn't good enough. And here I am in this community and they just, all I had to do was just show up and be myself. To me, that's the price of future faking is that that's as close as I got to homelessness. It was really expensive and scary It made me wonder if I had to be a victim in order for her to love me, because she certainly painted Sarah that way. And I'm not by nature um, a dependent or um, pessimistic person. I'm I'm not wired that way. But it seemed like she needed to break me down in order to um, take care of me, that that's where her sense of worth was or something like that. I don't know. That summer, I guess I finally graduated to to queer culture. She invited me to Toronto Pride. And it was just transforming. The the event itself was transforming. But then there were some little experiences there that were real game changers. It was my first opportunity to meet Sarah. And I was allowed to sleep at the co-op and meet their foster son. And I was really looking forward to some firsthand experience of her. You know, she'd been painted in a certain way. And the first thing that we did was go for a dog walk. And uh, we had three dogs and three women. So we stepped out into the hallway to get ready. And Sarah said, oh, three dogs and three mamas. And I said, well, don't you mean two mamas and one one papa? And she said, "Uh, what do you? what are you talking about? And I said, well, Andy said, you always call her Papa. And Sarah said, no, I don't. And every, every stereo, every description that Andy offered about Sarah was undone that, that day. Um, she was nothing like what she had described. She was, she was strong and so intelligent and accomplished and such a good hearted person, just a beautiful person. And, I was really relieved to discover that about Sarah, that she wasn't this invalid that Andy had described her as. But I also had to find another explanation for my girlfriend's behavior. So if, if Sarah isn't dependent, why are you so involved in her life? And I believe the answer is narcissistic control. I think she had her hooks in the lives of two women at the same time. Um, Andy monitored our conversation fairly closely. We weren't we weren't allowed to talk with each other a whole lot. But there were some things that we shared. Um, at one point, I apologized to Sarah because I needed Andy at home to help me with something. and she said, "Are you kidding?" Like, thank you." And one time she said, "Tag, you're it." Like she was she was happy for the break when Andy left, just as I became happy for the break when when Andy went back to the city. Another really important thing happened that week at Pride. Uh, We went to a comedy club, and the improv actors were acting out a scene where the audience was able to call out more gay or less gay. And then they would just, like, crank up the stereotypes. And what struck me about the volume control on that, like being more gay and less gay is that being gay is a spectrum, like a broad spectrum from like flaming gay at one end, which the actors did so well to just like your everyday average gay person. And it occurred to me that if the spectrum is that big, then you can't have one person who's in control of how we express ourselves. And unlike The Mennonite culture, which is hundreds of years old and relatively unchanged, queer culture is evolving in front of our eyes. And I'm actually part of it. And so on on that week, that pride week, two important things changed. I grew to love and accept Sarah. I didn't have to hate her anymore. I didn't have to compete with her anymore. And I decided that no one gets to decide how I'm gay or no one gets to decide my identity. I decide that, which to me, because that had always been the goalpost was like, you know, that I just, I just scored a touchdown like that, (laughs) right? Like, woohoo, I just, I made it, I'm here. But what I didn't realize and what I grossly underestimated is that I still had a narcissist on my hands. And all I had really done was taken away her two favorite modes of control. And she still needs to control me. So buckle up because I had things were about to get worse instead of better. One of the interesting things that we did at the end of Pride Week was um, Sarah, Sarah said there is a gospel concert at a church a Pride concert, and she said, I would really like to go, and I think you might like it. Would you like to go with me? Andy really liked to make fun of my culture and my faith. And now her ex-girlfriend was acknowledging something that was important to me and inviting me to come with her. And we we all went. Uh, Andy was on my left. Their foster son was on my right. And Sarah was on the other side of him. And it, we 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 took a picture. We, we took a selfie on the pew, all four of us. And we all posted it on Facebook. And everybody is like, you know, hashtag reconfigured relationships, hashtag blended families. And I wanted to be worthy of that. I, I can see why people saw that in that photo. But that's not what that was. That was narcissistic control. And I feel like Andy sort of infiltrated the cultural norm and made use of it. That whole exes stay friends thing. This is, you're not gay unless you're accepting of this. And what it actually was, was it was just two women who were very much under her control. So she had to find new methods of control after that. And she did two things. Uh, She bought a house that I was expected to live in. And she went after my friends. After she bought the house, um, she said, you know, you have to pay rent somewhere. So you're going to pay rent for me. When she was happy with me, she called it my mortgage payment. And when she was mad at me, she called it rent.
0: So so when you, when she bought the house and she's like, you have to move in, what is your thought process here? You know, your eyes are a lot more wide open at this point. You don't know really anything about narcissism at this point or or motives or, or what she could be up to. So when you know you had your, your chances to leave, not chances to leave, you wanted to leave many times and were manipulated back. So when you're kind of taking your power back and she then says, you're moving in with me, what does that trigger inside you for you to say at this point, okay, I'm doing it? Is it still you know, you have this trauma bond with her and cause right now you seem to be in control of the acceptance and your self accepting of who you are. So that is gone. So how does she, how does she hook you here?
1: It's interesting that you ask that, um, I certainly began speaking to her out of that place of, uh, out, of out of that place of strength and autonomy. Um, I decide who I am and what kind of relationship I want. Um, I, I, I had a tremendous feeling of obligation. I mean, I had been housing insecure for over a year and now she bought this house. So it was like, and she didn't intend on living there. I don't think it was, it was meant for me. So, I had a feeling of obligation, but I actually moved in and out three times in two months my my friend 's husband said, "If Erica moves again she 's going to have to find somebody else to help her because I kept moving in and out and i I hung pictures and I took them down and went back to my apartment i just I knew that this was the wrong thing to do and uh, By then, I had developed some really amazing friendships and I loved my work. I really missed my family. Um, I missed my house, (laughs) but I, my friendships were solid and I valued these people. So in Andy's absence, I did a lot to sort of build her up. I talked a lot about her when she was gone and truly I was proud of her. Like I bragged about her career and her travels and she's super interesting and All I ask is that when you come home that you just not be an asshole. Like, just, I've already set people up to like you. Just don't wreck that. Just be friendly for once. Um, But, oh, my God. We were invited to some friend's house. This was an older couple. Uh, They owned a restaurant. Andy was determined that she was going to undermine their restaurant and take it over she actually applied to be a chef at their restaurant and, as a joke and then yanked her application. And these people invited us to their house for drinks one evening, and I was so nervous because they are not her kind of people. And sure enough, I was in another part of the house, and a fight broke out. I went running into the living room, and she was going at my friend's husband. They, She was just judging everything about their life and the only part about that fight that was worthwhile was I had a front row seat to the kind of tactics that she uses with me when we were arguing and but unlike me like I've been marinating in her conditioning for years and and this guy is like are you fucking kidding me like what like you contradicted yourself and you can't turn that back on me and you know, you don't have any evidence to support that. Like, he just challenged her on everything. I was almost cheering. I was like, yes! Like, I've been saying that. So, she, we staggered home. Um, we, when she was in town, we slept in her empty house. So, we were on our way back, and she was still ranting, and I was quiet. And she said, what? I suppose you think I did something wrong. I was out of line. And th- this, is, this is the moment. Like, I'm having... I've got nothing except my friends. So if you come into this town and you start affecting my friendships, people aren't going to want to hang out with me when you're around. This is all I have. And I am making a choice right here. It's either you or them. And I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And then that night, she she got a little bit rough with Ricky. And Ricky is my world and uh, i managed to get away i got in my car and i drove to my apartment and i i blocked her in every way imaginable she had she had six phone numbers she always had two phones she had all kinds of social media i blocked her and for, i wasn't even tempted to check and 6 weeks later i was getting ready for bed and I was getting a, a message from an unknown U.S. number, and it was a picture that was downloading, and it was her. And she had gotten a U.S. SIM card, which got through all of my blocks, and it was a picture of her on the beach with a wedding band, wearing a wedding band, holding um, her little dog. She had a little dog named Peanut that I really loved. And she said, I just married you. You are my wife. You will be my wife forever. You should be here with us. Peanut misses you. And instinctively, I unblocked her social media just to see what was there. Because I hadn't looked. This is no contact. And for six weeks, there was a smear campaign using everything that I had ever shared with her, including my culture, Anything about codependency or boundaries. Gaslighting. And she claimed to be the victim of my abuse. And what was clear at that point was... (laughs) The people that would be available to her as flying monkeys in the future. Like the friends that she would recruit to believe her story. And so... After I met Sarah, I was very, very careful not to run to her with petty things. Um, But I needed needed some objective input here, so I contacted Sarah. And I said, listen, I am looking at a photo with her wearing a wedding band, and I'm looking at a six-week smear campaign that I assume you've seen. Can you help me understand this? And she said, Sarah said, she said, Erica, I've started seeing someone and I am in love. And Andy is driving me <laughs> Andy is driving me crazy and you need to take her back. <laughs> um so I called I called Andy's number and I was determined that I wasn't going to settle for anything less than an explanation that made sense. But I got so sidetracked by Peanut She said, you know, I've bought you this house, and I love you, and I've married you, and I want you to have peanut. I want peanut to come live with you. And five minutes later, I moved in. There was enough positive reinforcement after I moved in to make me think for a little while that that had been the right choice. Um, We started hosting our friends. Um, My friends became her friends. I thought she really liked them. We hosted both sides of our family. My family came from Manitoba and stayed with us. Um, Sometimes Peanut would come to visit. She didn't actually end up living with me, which felt like a bit of a trick. But we felt like a family. She came and went still. she, She never lived with me full time. But it was clear that she was still very much controlling me. And now more than ever, now more than ever, you know, every two or three weeks I had a home inspection and she was scrutinizing how I lived in the house. And then after peanut eventually did come live with me, um, that was the worst of the control because I'm now living in a house that she owns and I'm caring for her dog. So she has all the rights in the world to tell me what to, to do. And Peanut was very old and very sick and skinny, and it was hard to um, get her to eat. Andy used food to control all of us. She loaded Sarah's fridge and told her what to eat. She loaded my fridge and told me what to eat. If I was hungry... If we were, like, traveling and I was hungry, we would postpone eating. If I wasn't hungry, we would go out for a big meal, and she would be mad if I didn't eat. If I said I wasn't eating something, that's the very thing that she made for me to eat. There was so much consumption of alcohol. And then she cooked She cooked all of our dog food, and it just seemed like when she cooked for the dogs, they got sick. And so like Ricky would she would vomit and she was nauseous and she would drool when Andy cooked and i don't know what she put in the food and i'm not saying she put anything in the food but somehow she they she got sick and then Andy would give them human medication and then Ricky would get even sicker so when i had when i finally had peanut she controlled every she she would she would say you're making my dog fucking sick. Like, this this is the reason why she's going to die. And what are you doing with the dogs? What are you feeding them? And my phone was full of dog shit photos because I, I had to take pictures of all of their shit and show her. And I wasn't allowed to pick up the backyard if she was coming home because she would go collect the dog shit and bring it in the house. And then she would say, how long did you cook the rice? And what protein did you use? And wh- why is this so red? Or why is this so orange? And one day, the worst—the worst thing happened. I came home, and there was a pool of congealed blood. And I knew that, I knew that Peanut had vomited blood. And I looked at her gums, and they were all white. And that night, she had a really severe seizure. So I, of course, I texted Andy, and I said, "Peanut is sick." She said, well, we need to bring her to the city. And I I said, I'm not bringing her to the city. I'm taking her to my vet here. I said, my vet said that it was neurological, that she had had a seizure. And Andy said, no, it's not. It's cardiac. So we took her to a cardiologist, and she was on a heart monitor for 24 hours. And the cardiologist said, no, her heart is fine. And Andy said, I told you so. I said, I never said that it was cardiac. I said it was neurological. She said, well, I don't know what it is, but you're paying for it. And so I forked over $2,000 for this cardiac evaluation. And as we were driving away, she said, you, know, you can submit that receipt to Sarah. And I just thought how amazing it is that there's two women who are paying for everything, thousands of dollars for everything. Her contact lenses, her dental appointments, Cardiac things, trips to the vet like we were part of a bowling league. Like it was just her hobby to go to the veterinarian. Two women who were paying for everything and one woman who was controlling it all. Um, this is the end of the, the peanut story. I was scheduled to speak in another out of, out of town. And I said to Andy... You're going to be home that weekend, right? Like, Peanut is sick, and you need to be here. And she said, oh, yeah, I forgot about your big, important career. Yeah, see, I thought that you could look after her, but I guess I was wrong. And uh, I guess maybe she's going to have to go back to Sarah, you know, her real mommy. So Andy drove all the way to the lake, and she took Peanut away. And when she got Peanut back, back to the city, she just got she got really impatient and frustrated with her. And she said, she's just acting stupid. She's like walking into the walls. And I said, she's having seizures. She needs to come back. So Andy brought her back to me. And there I was with the dog that belonged to my girlfriend and my girlfriend's ex-girlfriend. She's not even mine. And I was, I was completely alone at the time of her death with just with her. And instead of phoning Andy, I actually phoned Sarah. And I was crying. And I said, "Um, I'm really scared that you're going to blame me for Peanut's death. And Sarah said, I never would have entrusted her to you if I didn't think that you were a good mama. And she said, please tell her I love her and say goodbye. And that's when I turned off my phone Like, this is a relationship that's built and maintained by texting. And when Peanut was dying, I turned off my phone. And I knew I would get shit for that later because Andy wanted to, you know, FaceTime. And I thought, you know, there's some things you get to do virtually. Like, you could marry me on a beach virtually by yourself, but you don't get to do this virtually. If, if you're not here and you miss it, that's your problem. And, you know, you talk, Brandon, at the start of the podcast about what got you hooked. And when Peanut died, I was unhooked. And I everything after that point was a matter of getting out. Um, one of the things I had done when Peanut got sick was um, I was drinking heavily like every night, almost always to the point of being drunk. And I was coping with, with this by drinking. But I knew that I would need to drive Peanut to the vet at any time, so I'd, I, I quit. And so by the time she died, I had been sober for about six weeks. And then after she died, my head was so clear. Like I just – I had a sense of clarity – I mean, I was I was heartbroken, and I was feeling all the feels, and I was tempted to drink, but I wanted to stay that way. I wanted to stay clear-headed. So I found a counselor who helped me navigate what was happening, not only with my grief, but then we talked about my relationship. And one of the most helpful things that the counselor did was um, we looked at our communication through a couple of communication models, to sort of identify where the problems were. And she asked me to explain the kinds of things that we disagreed about. And I said, well, I don't know if they're disagreements. She said, well, give me an example. So I told her this story. When Andy arrives for what she calls a visit, I call it coming home, but she calls it visiting, we we always unloaded her car in the same way. And I found in the bottom of the cooler... um, a blade guard for her hair clipper. And I specifically took it to the bathroom. I removed the cardboard case. I opened the snaps. I put it in the case. I closed the snaps. I put the cardboard back. I put it in the cupboard. And half an hour later, when she was ready to shower, I said, it's in the case. And she said, no, it's not. And this is how conditioning and gaslighting have worked over time. I had put it in that case 30 minutes earlier with a great deal of intention. Like it took steps to make sure that the blade guard was in the case. And it, when she said that I completely dismissed what I knew to be true and started ripping the house apart, looking for that blade guard. And I stopped at some point, like I had ripped apart the bed. I had torn apart the fridge looking for this thing. And I was like, Erica, Erica. 30 minutes ago, you put it in the case. So I went back to the case and I said, tell tell me what you did in the city. She said, I found the blade guard. It was blade number three. I didn't want to forget it. I put it on the vanity so that I wouldn't forget it. So I went back to the case. I looked, The, the kit should have eight blade guards and there were only seven. So there was one missing. I had put a blade guard in there. But it obviously wasn't this blade guard. I contacted Sarah. I said, can you go to Andy's apartment and see if there's a blade guard in the bathroom? And in seconds, second, she sent me a picture, and she said, this one? And I still have that photo because it was, like, the day that I undid my gaslighting. like the... And then I went back to the bathroom, and I said, hey, Sarah found your blade guard. It was in your bathroom. And she said... That's okay. I wasn't going to cut my hair after all. So just jumping through all of the hoops and questioning my own reality. I, I thought, I, I have to be done with this. I can't keep doing this. This is insane. It's crazy making. The counselor, once she came to understand, she called it narcissism. And she said, do you, do you have an escape plan? And I said, well, I, I bought a motorhome. <laughs> I bought an old shitty motorhome, um, but it needs to be refinished. It leaks like crazy. I, I have to gut it and, and start from scratch. And she said, I, I recommend that you start creating an exit plan. So I did. I just tore into the, the motorhome. My dad came and helped me a little bit, and the rest was all me. Um, and five minutes later, we were in a pandemic So I'm on the brink of leaving and now, I mean, how the hell do you leave a relationship like this and sleep in other people's houses when we're wearing masks and we're unvaccinated and what, like, how do I, how do I leave now in the middle of a pandemic and it's December? How do I get out of this? Um, Andy at that point became really fixated on getting another dog. And I mean, I didn't, I didn't want to own a broom with her. Let alone another living because then I would be stuck. So I was like, "Nope, I'm no, no, thank you." So she sent me a picture one day of this this cute little little guy, and I said, "No, thank you. I am not. We're not getting another dog." And you know, remember she had done this with Sarah at, back at the beginning. Like she's like she's ready to leave me, and I got her another dog to keep her occupied. So here we go again.
0: And, and mm-hmm. good on you for recognizing that. You know, all of these things, guilt, uh, shame, ways that she got you to stay, here was a way for her to get you, uh, at least put some guilt on you while you're going to leave me and the dog. You know, that was going to be the hook. Good on you on recognizing it and stopping it before it happened. <laughs> well, or, don't go too far. Or, or, oh, I went too far. <laughs> I, I overstepped the story boundary there. I, you know, Okay. Go for it. Tell what was going to happen. Yeah, happened.
1: no, there is one more hook. Oh, she's she says um. She said, "Do you know? Well, before you say no, do you know what his name is? Do you want to know his name?" And I said, "Okay, what's his name?" She said, "His name is Edward John. this dog. His name is Edward John, and that's my dad's name." I said, "Are you serious? His name is Edward John. Like who? <laughs> who names their dog that? For starters." She said, "Yeah, we can call him Eddie." And I, you know, Ricky is named after me. That's my dad's nickname for me. And there's here's here's Eddie. And I said, "We're at the start of the pandemic." And I said, "Well, let's let's foster him." So she went to the city and got him, and she brought him. And then one day the um, the SPCA called, and they said, "We're we're trying to keep the shelter clear because we're expecting an influx, and we would like to offer you." um, Sprocket, we would like for, for you to adopt him if you're interested. And I said, yeah, oh yes, absolutely. Because by by then I loved him and I said, I would love that, but you should know that we don't, we don't have Sprocket, but we have Eddie and the SPCA said, we don't, there is no Eddie. We don't, and she described his breed and his color. And I said, yeah, that's the dog, but his, and she said, his name is Sprocket. So of course she lied to me, and that that was just so blatant. Like I couldn't ignore that, and I knew that it was urgent that I that I get out. I think the 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 final nail in the coffin. Um, through the pandemic, I had been working in education online the whole time. And by fall of that year, we were back to in-person, in-classroom. And I take my time with other people's children very seriously, especially during a pandemic. And I had a partner who, although she was really dogmatic about public health orders and, you know, she was on Facebook telling everybody how she's highly political and very aggressive on Facebook, and yet she herself just came and went through the pandemic um, you know, we were going to create these huge food stores in our house and I was not going to be allowed to leave the house. And yet she would go to five different stores looking for the right lettuce. So she was entitled to do what she wanted through the pandemic, but nobody else was. And so she came, I was, you know, going back into the classroom. She was coming and going from Toronto. And I was very concerned about that Um how dismissive she was of safety procedures, even in our own home. And one day in fall, she announced that she had invited house guests from the city that were going to be staying with us. And alcohol is a major problem in in Andy's life. And so the people that congregated at our house through the pandemic were all drinking. They were all unemployed or off work or whatever. So I'm the only one in our friendship group who's who's working. I have to go to bed. I have to get up in the morning. I need Wi-Fi. I need things to be quiet at home, and my house is just full of drunk people all the time. So these guests come and I get sick. I am I have a fever and I am unbelievably sick. And these people just sit in my backyard drinking and you know, if I open the kitchen window, I can hear I can hear what they talk about. I know that these are flying monkeys in the making. These are the people that are going to turn on me when I go. And one night, I, I, I mean, I was sick. I was awaiting a COVID test, and I was obviously symptomatic, and I had a lecture to give to the university. So I delivered my lecture from a dog bed in the corridor of one of my schools at plus five with a fever sitting on a dog bed lecturing to my class and this is another moment of of generosity where one of my students had reached out to somebody who lived in the community and said hey our our professor is is uh teaching from a dog bed (laughs) she's sick and all of a sudden these headlights pulled up i was like hi i'm just teaching a class and this woman got out of her car she was masked And she put a mug of hot water on the curb beside me and bags of tea. And I just, I just sobbed. I just looked into my laptop and I sobbed. And I was like, I don't know who did this, but thank you. And it just, you know, the homeless people, a stranger bringing me tea, even Sarah and her generosity were were more to me than Andy was. So I made a plan to escape. And I refuse to call it breaking up. I mean, rational people break up. But when you live with this, this is about escaping. This is about fleeing. And I found a place to put the motor home. It, um, I hadn't quite finished it yet. And it needed to be undercover. But it was only a couple blocks away. Uh, Andy left for the city on December 19th of last year. And she was due back on Christmas Eve. So I had four or five days to to get out. And unfortunately one of the flying monkeys, I forgot to lock the house during one of my trips to the storage locker. And um I came home and there was a bag of cookies in the kitchen. And obviously the house was torn apart. It's very clear that I'm moving. And then I got a text from Andy and she said, The fuck are you doing? And I said su- I said, I'm I'm done. I, I'm I'm leaving. And from that moment on, I started setting my watch to four hour intervals because that's how long it would take her to come from the city and so I moved everything I valued in four hours and then I found out she was still there so I had another four hours and I just kept resetting my clock and at the time we had a in our town we had an infestation of of rats and we had lots of rats in our crawl space and Andy um, one day Andy had um, she was shopping for a gun, and she sent me a picture, and she said, I'm going to kill the fuckers. And at that point, she had started referring to Eddie, our new dog, as the demise of our relationship. And that gun just kept moving. It was in the night table, and then it would be in the kitchen, and then it was in my office. And I just, I was on edge all the time. So she was threatening me as I was moving out. She was going to have me arrested and um, stupidly, I phoned my dad <laughs> I phoned my parents, and my dad my dad couldn't stand her, and he said, "I'll be right there." So he left Manitoba in the middle of the night in the middle of a blizzard, and he's seventy two years old. And the next day, when he should have been due to arrive, he he phoned and he said, Ricky, I've been in an accident. And he had rolled his truck. So I went to get him. And at this point, I was just so scared. Um, The dogs dogs were with me constantly. I was so scared. And I said, Dad, I... I I did, I couldn't get us two hotel rooms. I just got one and I just I just need you to be with me. Of course he he would, but that night when we were getting ready for bed and he took his shirt off, he was completely purple and his his bicep was torn. And I just I just hate the thought that you know, my dad had been hurt over this chaos. I think one of the things that I've learned since leaving is that when you're breaking up, you might look for your next apartment and that might be the next long term place that you live. But when when we're fleeing a circumstance like this, all you really need, at least all I, I at least all I really needed was a place to land. And that might not be my next permanent place to live, but I just needed a place to land and regroup. And so, amazingly, um, I know Brandon. You can see my my little living space, but right behind me here, there's a a covered a covered pole barn, and that's where the motorhome is. And so I I moved the motorhome in, which is where I was going to live, but right in front of it was this unfinished shack, this this shed and my friend who had been watching me renovate the motorhome said you know you're welcome to renovate you're welcome to renovate the shack if you like and so they trusted me to do to to move all of my tools and all of my skills and everything that i had learned in building the motorhome i just used it to rebuild this place that is now my home and the more that i did the more competent I felt, and it trickled into other areas of my life. It wasn't just about knowing how to, you know, install a hot water tank. It was about, I can make my own decisions, and I can be in charge of my own life. And it just gave me courage. And it's amazing when I talk to other people on forums who have survived domestic violence, how someone will say... You know, I just built a bunk bed and I, or I just fixed my leaky faucet. And there's just something about that that is empowering. And so I'm literally living in, in a space that um, I created for myself.
0: So just to backtrack one second, when your dad, you, you and your dad, you were able to leave the area and you went straight to where you are now? Or did you stop somewhere in between? And what was the reaction uh, when you were gone from uh, your partner?
1: That time was such a blur. Um, but somehow, no, I did not move directly into the motorhome. Um, it was only a couple blocks from Andy, and she knew where it was. And so I was afraid of living there. But I took refuge, I guess, in at a friend's farm for a couple of months. Um, the, the smear campaign was huge and the people that I expected her to recruit, she did, um, our friendship group really divided along the lines of substance use. So those who continue to drink are part of one and, um, she found, she liked to put things up in the living room window. So she found a bunch of the dog toys and things that she knew would matter to me. And the the story that she's telling, of course, is that I, I stole her dogs. But when I, um, as my dad was preparing to go back to Manitoba, I knew I needed to create a protection plan. So I went to victim services. I went to the women's shelter and they were, I had already written my own application for a protection order and they read it and they said, can we help you write this differently? And of course, yes. And it was so amazing how victim services and the women's shelter and the RCMP liaison person helped. They said, we're going to write this in a way that the judge can respond to it, that the judge can hear this. And she said, dogs are not a relationship in the eyes of the law. They're property and you have to demonstrate that they're yours. And I said, well, <laughs> that's not hard because I've been paying for things for six years. Like, they're, they're my property and on paper. And one of the ironic things about this is that Andy is such a keyboard warrior and her, like, her life is built on Facebook. And so as soon as I was leaving, she invested all of her time building this narrative on Facebook and she was trying to create security for herself up uh, to sort of secure a story and secure support and while she was doing that virtually I was doing it in real life I did 3 months worth of errands in 4 days I went to the bank and payroll and pension and the post office and the veterinarian and I was creating real security and she was creating virtual security. And while I may have lost some friends in the process, I now have friends that I truly value. I live in a beautiful little home that I'm proud of and I have my dogs.
0: So now that you are in your home, which is beautiful and cozy and You have your dogs, you are safe, and you're still dealing with the repercussions of everything that happened emotionally, trying to understand. Obviously, you delved into who you were dealing with, what you were dealing with. You started to look into abusive behaviors, narcissism, whatever the person uh, you were dealing with had, what what Andy might be uh, up to, whatever her traits were. And that's part of your uh, healing process. But when it came to things about you during this process, what did you discover about yourself? And what were the biggest things as far as your healing uh, went, uh, what are the things you are working on so this never happens again?
1: I, I sort of created um a, a fraction for myself. I said that 20% of my time, 20% of my therapeutic plan was going to be devoted to understanding narcissism and your podcast and all of these amazing stories are a part of that 20% of my therapeutic energy. Um, I think it's important to understand the unique thing that we've all experienced and the unique damage that it does that helps me build supports around that unique damage. But 80% of my energy has been spent understanding myself and what it was that I brought to this relationship. Um, what habits I have, what's, what made me susceptible to to this kind of person, uh, obviously, it's this pattern has repeated, and I don't want it to repeat again. And I've been tremendously helped by um, I'm going to say the enneagram, and I know you've you've interviewed other people who've referenced that as well. So, and,
0: so what what enneagram type are you?
1: <laughs> I'm enneagram type eight.
0: And what wing?
1: I am I am a strong seven wing.
0: And so what, for what, those... what is the name of the eight with the seven?
1: <laughs> it's the challenger. I am the challenger. Um,
0: go so, ahead. So, so what are your, what for the eight, what are your basic fears and basic desires?
1: Oh God. My basic fear is vulnerability. I have a desire for innocence. Um, I am powerfully motivated by autonomy. I want to be in charge of my own life. And I meet the world aggressively. Um, that, those are the traits of an eight. But one of the things that really served me well in understanding what happened and in my recovery is that under stress, type eight moves to a place that's very analytical. It's less emotional because I'm, I'm highly reactive. I'm, I'm an, I've got lots of passion. But under stress, I become less emotional more objective and more analytical. So, as the stress of this relationship increased, I got smarter, and I I dove into some really concrete information. Um, one of the things I did, one of the things I do as a counselor is, I try not to take notes. Well my clients are talking and I, so I have a a pretty solid memory when it comes to documenting a conversation. So when Andy and I entered into an argument, I shifted into counselor mode and then very shortly I would go and document it. And that allowed me to analyze where things went wrong, things that I could do differently in the future. So my, my stress direction as an Enneagram eight served me very well in rising above the emotion and the insanity of this relationship. And then the other thing that really helps me particularly now is I know that when I'm moving to my place of health and wholeness and well-being, is, is absolutely driven towards community and towards my, my health direction is type two, which is the helper. So I turn all of that energy and all that information into um, how can we just be a healthier community together? And so when I think about your podcast for starters um and the groups that you've created that to me is is my health direction that's where where I need to go um so that yeah that model has explained a lot to me and by the way I also know Andy's enneagram type um that that was a big part of our conversation as a couple we we talked about our enneagram types and she's she's a type 5 um but she is the thing I love about the Enneagram is that we have healthy expressions and unhealthy and, and she's obviously in the narcissistic, very unhealthy expression of type five.
0: She's a one to three in the health level somewhere down there.
1: Very much so. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah.
0: So when it came to the Enneagram and learning from your experience of what happened, where there parts of you, obviously, you know, your basic fear is of being controlled by others. And mm-hmm. that came true. So, you know, your basic fear came to life. And in a way, you were living in a fear a lot throughout your whole entire life in the sense of, you know, not being able to be yourself. And now you're here and... It, you know, you have control for your first time, your full control, and it, it wasn't easy to get to this place. You had to deal with a lot of stuff and a lot of internal stuff before the this abusive situation even happened, and you got here. That's a lifelong struggle, and you should be proud of yourself for getting here and everything that you had to endure to get here, to be who you are, to be your authentic self. And you're finally at a place where you get to be your authentic, beautiful self. And you're, in a strange way, you're lucky that a lot of people never get here. And you're going to get here and you have half your life to live still. And you're going to do uh, amazing things. So, you know, even in this recovery process, are you looking at these positive things about it? And are you dwelling on on the past? Are you still fixated on that? Or are you just being like, okay, that's happened. And now I'm kind of, this is my future. And this is how I'm going to get there.
1: I am absolutely motivated by the future. And there's an interesting piece about the Enneagram that describes our our orientation to time. And I'm powerfully oriented for things in the future. Um, this experience has forced me to be in the present and to cope with it, but I am a, a future-minded person. And what I've learned, and I hope that what's been conveyed through the story, is that there were little lessons along the way that if we if we reflect on them i reflected on them and they were instructional for me so that my time with the people the homeless people and the woman who brought me a cup of tea and sitting on that pew together those were those were all reminders that i'm in charge of my identity and my choices i am in charge of my own life and, and the thing that protects me from, from vulnerability, I can still be vulnerable, but the thing that protects me is boundaries. So if I just have boundaries with people, I can decide when and how to be vulnerable and still enjoy the intimacy that that creates, knowing that if somebody crosses that line, I can say, hey, you know what? That that actually doesn't work for me. And I, I have never done that in my life. So I'm, I'm learning.
0: And... If you have any words of wisdom or advice for everyone listening, what would that be?
1: I would like to say, I would like to describe um, my two favorite questions. There were some friends who were absolutely not helpful in my process of moving. There were some friends who intended to be helpful, but were inadvertently not but my favorite response from friends was these two questions. Erica, what do you want to do? And how can I help you do that? And for the friends who asked me what I want, what I wanted to do, it built in me a sense of, of agency, a sense of competence. Even, even if you're supporting a friend who's in a narcissistic relationship and they're not ready to leave, even even if they say I want to stay then maybe what they want is a safety plan or they want to work on a skill and I think that's the most supportive thing or at least that's that's the kind of question that really works for somebody like me is to say what do you want and how can I help you do that and I don't want to be pushed I don't want to be forced or manipulated and and the more that I was in charge of leaving um the more momentum I built towards leaving. And I think as a, as a survivor and as somebody who's living in it, um, you will know when it's time. And sometimes the scale tips because of something big, and sometimes it tips because of something very small, like teaching on a dog bed. So I, I would just say you know when you know, and you'll find a way. And, and as far as housing goes, just – Just know that the place that you land when you first escape might not be your permanent place to live forever, but you need a place to land and regroup and then decide where to go from there and just to be okay with it.
0: Well, Erica, I want to thank you for being here with me today. I also wanted to mention something that I haven't mentioned yet, which is the notes that you gave me were... were Impeccable. Did you see that? Oh my look I'm looking at wow. Can you send that to me? Everyone, I am looking at a map here of this that is the most incredible little thing. Uh, this is wonderful. I'm trying how do I explain to everyone what I'm looking at here?
1: I I just took the notes that I sent you, my outline, and I just started doodling it and i'll be honest with you there's another one that includes my escape plan
0: oh everyone so I, is- this is the most amazing doodle of your story it uh, i can't it's hard to explain what i'm actually looking at but it is uh, you need to make that into a book can you send it <laughs> honestly i did
1: i did send it to you yeah i just it, sent uh, it now
0: oh you just did okay like yeah. a- everyone uh, can i show that to everyone after like i put it on my website or something
1: I will just look at it and make sure it's all de-identified, and okay. then yes, absolutely. Okay,
0: it's amazing what you have right there. Uh, but <laughs> but the the notes that you gave me, besides that, you had like little time stamps beside beside everything, and you were like dead on with all of your time for like eats because oh. you put like just a little, you put like a little header, and you're like five minutes here. Uh, then you put it like the time it would take. And it it was just um, amazing. And you told everything beautifully. And you're such a wonderful person. you articulated yourself in a way that I couldn't articulate myself right now while describing that articulation. (laughs) That's all I can say right there. You're wonderful. And I just want to thank you for being here uh, with me today and sharing your story. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you.
1: And thank you, Brandon. And I also want to thank all the people who have shared their stories so far because they have been instrumental in understanding my own healing. And I am so grateful to each of them.
0: Well, thank you. Thank everyone for being part of the show. Thank you to all of our listeners and from Erica and I, we hope you have a good night.